0: With all the noise and chaos and confusion that's raging all around us today. What do you think is the biggest danger that the church is facing now? Is it atheism and the hostility of secular thinking against biblical morals and truth? Is it. The spread of Islam and the increased persecution of Christians around the world? Is it the collapse of a free market? Is it the end of democracy? Is it the overreach of government officials? Well, no doubt, all of these things are serious concerns that will affect how we fulfill our calling and mission as Christians today. But if you listen to Jesus and the letters of the New Testament, you will see that they had a much greater concern than any of that. You realize? And the concern that they had is a concern that's still with us today because it's rooted in the sinful Hearts of men and women. What am I talking about? I am talking about the relentless drive and the tenacious attraction that human beings have for some kind of man made religion or system that puts you in the driver's seat and focuses on external behavior while ignoring the internal and sinful condition of the heart that Jesus and the Bible says is actually the biggest problem that keeps our world blowing up and our lives falling apart. Go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. Luke chapter 11, verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee, Pharisees were a group of select People in that day that spent more time reading their Bibles than anybody else. In fact, they were known, they called it phylacteries. They were known for leather bands around their head with a box in the middle full of scripture they'd memorize. Kind of a show-off group. They'd have a leather band around their arm with a box of scripture they'd memorize. These were the guys that spent day and night studying The scriptures. And so everyone in that culture looked to them and thought, if you want to know God, if you want to be right with God, if you want to know how you should live, look to them. A Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside... You are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb So the Old Testament taught that you should tithe, you should give back to God a tenth of anything that comes your way, recognizing it all comes from him. They were so meticulous that they would take herb plants that they had in their yard and count the number of leaves and make sure that they gave one, a tenth of everything that they had. This is how careful they're being. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Here's what he's doing right there. They were so concerned in that day to not be defiled. If you were Around a dead person or you touched a dead person. You were considered ceremonially unclean for so many days. You couldn't worship. And he's saying, so they marked graves carefully He's saying, here's what you are. You're like unmarked graves that people are walking across. You think you're helping people and you are actually defiling people. You're like an unmarked grave that people are walking over. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He should have kept his mouth shut and just been quietly offended. Instead, he raises his hand and says, ooh, ooh, you realize you offend us also? And Jesus whirls on him and says, yeah, I got three woes for you too, you and your whole group. He said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Look at me a minute. He's not saying that literal group of people listening to him right now are going to be accountable for everyone who's been murdered and martyred for the sake of. He's saying people like you, this kind of generation that think like you do, that are trying to be right with God the way you do. This generation From the blood, verse 51, of Abel to the blood of Zachariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered people who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. And to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, I hope you're picking up on. If you've been journeying with us through the Book of Luke, have you sensed a shift? It's like, oh, all these come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and, and the kind, free offer of the gospel. There seems to be a shift, and the tone of his preaching. And who he's speaking to, he's speaking to them in a very different way. Jesus, right here. And last week was already rough, but this is rough. Jesus, in a horrendous breach of etiquette and good manners at the dinner table, unleashes a string of six woes that exposes the hypocrisy of their man-made religion that works so hard to get every little tiny, external, visible detail just right while ignoring the sinful condition of their own heart. And so Jesus goes off on them. Jesus goes off on them because he knows you guys. He knows something that we need to understand. This far more, far more This man-made religion far more than atheism, persecution, or any political structure is what will keep you from seeing yourself the way you should and keep you from seeing him the way you should. This is what gets in the way the most. This is the biggest hindrance. This is what would cause you to go to hell and take others with you. This man-made religion system I can do it. I can do it. Tell me what to do. And so in verse 39, basically what you have here is he takes off the gloves, sets aside all court cultural decorum and unleashes a blistering tirade that doesn't let up until verse 52. Why? Because he knows how much this matters and how it affects your eternal destiny. If you get caught up in this, if you get lost in this, you'll miss the free offer of the gospel. You will not go to heaven. You will not be right with God. And I want you to note this. Read all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The way he's talking right here, whoa, 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 you whitewashed sepulchers, you vipers. You'll find other places where hes you'll never find Jesus. Going on a blistering tirade towards a woman caught in adultery. Towards a woman at the well who's had four husbands and now she's living with one. Just living with a man. Never. He offers the free offer of the gospel to them. Why? Because he knows people who are in a mess are often... More aware. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. It's people who are self righteous and all caught up in thinking, boy, I'm so grateful I've never done horrible things like other people and I've been living so right and I'm following all the rules. And, and that's who he goes off on. Not because he hates them. Please know he loves them too. We already had it in Luke. That word woe does not mean condemnation, it means alas. Deep regret. I am so regretful for you and everyone around you that this is what you're caught up in. Whoa, whoa. Because until you see yourself as a desperate sinner in need of a savior, you can't even respond to the free offer of the gospel. So he goes after this. He hates this. Why? Well, listen, if you get caught up in some kind of man-made religion, Does that still exist today? Oh, you better believe it. If you get caught up in some kind of man-made religion or system, number one, number one, you will be shocked and offended by a lot of what Jesus says and does. You realize the way people respond to Jesus is largely determined by the heart that they bring to Jesus in the moment. When you're desperate, when you're you're willing to say, I'm a mess and I need help, you're not offended by him. It sounds like good news. It sounds like really good news. You're delighted. But when you're busy trying to prove how great you are, he's very offensive. You don't like the things he's saying and you don't like a lot of the things he's doing because it doesn't affirm you. The heart you bring to Jesus often determines the way you respond to Jesus. When you're caught up in man-made religion, you're often shocked and offended by him instead of delighted. Look at verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished. You can put in there shocked, amazed, marveled. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, please know his mother, Mary, was a good mom. She taught him to wash up before dinner. This is not like lack of personal hygiene, you guys. What he's talking about was a ceremonial washing. So what they had done is they had added all these layers upon layers upon layers of extra rules on top of the Bible that they had equal with Scripture. And they had a ceremonial policy and rule of before you ate, you should ceremonially wash your hands. And here's what it involved. Take your one hand with the fingertips pointing upward. Take the water, pour it on the top of the fingertips, let it drip off your wrist. Then take your other hand with a fist and rub the palm. Now turn your hand down and pour the water at the wrist, letting it drip off the fingertips. Take your fist, rub the palm, go other hand. Take your hand with the fingers pointed upward. Pour water on it so that it drips off the wrist. Take your fist. Rub the palm of your hand. Take your hand. Point it down. Turn the water at the wrist and let it drip off the fingers and rub with your palm. And they would do this often in between every course. Being so meticulous to make sure I'm not defiled. That's what he's talking about. I could go on and on and on. They had so much of this to wear. And here's what always happens, right? Whenever you get this going, it started off as oral tradition that was just passed down. And then they collected all these thoughts in a book called the Mishnah. And then they said, oh, yeah, there's the Bible, but also this. And after a while, what starts to happen? This becomes equal. And then, yea, verily, this becomes more authoritative and greater. And lest we look back there and say, how could they Maybe you grew up in a church that meant well, right? Here we go. We don't play cards. Why? Because often people play cards and they drink and they gamble at the same time. So cards are bad. Don't play cards. Don't go to the movies. We don't go to the movies. We don't play cards. We don't dance. We don't smoke. We don't drink. Dresses have to be a certain length. Men's hair has to be a certain length. On and on and on and on and on. And did they mean well? What did they become known for? The scripture or this? And guess what starts to happen? You become very judgmental towards anyone that isn't doing all this that you're doing or not doing it as well as you're doing. And this actually begins to overcloud and shadow God's word. Why does this happen? Because the human heart is wired, I hope you realize, for lists and systems and boxes you check Tell me what to do. I want a system so that I can do these things and know I'm okay. And I especially love thinking I'm better than other people because of this legalism. Adding to the Bible, he was astonished, but for the wrong reason. Look at verse 45. One of the lawyers answered, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Remember, I've already told you from Luke, whenever you see the word lawyer, it's not talking about an attorney that would help you in court against your neighbor who's fighting with you over the property line. Lawyer in that day, they were experts in the Old Testament law. They studied it more than anybody else. But notice what he said in our passage. All you've done is add more. And you are burdening people. And you're not lifting a finger to help them. They just continued to add layer upon layer. They were so... These are the guys that should have known what God's word said more than anybody else. Because they studied it more than anyone else. But they were so busy adding to it or extrapolating from it. That they were lost in a complicated maze of man-made rules. Now, let me tell you what I mean by extrapolate from it. And people tend to think, oh, this is good. It's not good. Extrapolate from it means when the Bible says, don't do this, you step back and say, oh, if you don't want to do that, the best way to never do that is not do that. And to never do that would be to never do that. And if you don't really want to do that, then don't even do this. Like, don't get out of bed. (laughs) You realize that is not a good thing. So you may choose to not drink, and that is your choice. It is is a good choice for some of you. If you came from a home where drunkenness is a deal or or it was your deal before you came to Christ, please choose accordingly and make good choices. But the Bible does not teach drinking is a sin. It teaches drunkenness is a sin. But here's what I hear sometimes. Well, you know what, Pastor Brad, best way to never get drunk is never drink. Shut up. (laughs) Yeah, that may be the best way for you to never get drunk, but for you to lay... And see, then you lay it on other, and you judge, and you think. If we, take, if we go down that path with other sins, we end up with, hey, sex is good. God gave us sex, but he says not fornication when you're not married, not adultery with someone you're not married to, not bestiality, not same sex. Why don't we say, best way to not abuse sex is not have sex. I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> right? It's take it and use it the way God said to use it. But don't start adding additional rules because people get lost in the rules. And worse than that, start affirming themselves thinking, I'm keeping these. You may choose not to go to movies because you say those same producers and whatever make horrible movies. So even if it's a good movie, my money is going to them. I get it. But at the end of the day, you could go nuts if you think you're going to research every company. And do they give any money towards anything bad? Just go shop. And if you want to watch a movie that you think is appropriate, watch it. And if you have a conviction differently, do it. Don't violate your conscience, but don't create all these rules for everybody else. It's in the human heart.
1: Legalism,
0: man-made, adding to, extrapolating from, and the word of God and the hope of the gospel and the central character, guess what? Gets lost, gets clouded over, gets missed, missed. Number two, when you're caught up in a man-made religion, you will be missing. If you get caught up in man-made religion, religion, you'll miss the very key to real wisdom and life. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. You hindered others who were entering. What's he talking about? What is this key of knowledge that he's talking about? I believe it's a reference to himself he's talking about himself. He said, "You've taken away the very key of knowledge." Me, me. The book of Colossians chapter 2, if you want to go there later this afternoon, talked about talks about Jesus encapsulating all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The person of Jesus is real wisdom, is real knowledge. That's how you know God. It's Jesus. He says, "You've taken away the very key of knowledge." A reference to himself. See, I I hope you realize the person of Jesus is the key to unlocking and understanding the scriptures, all of it, both Old and New Testament. You say, really? Yes. If you miss Jesus, you will miss the whole point of the Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, here's what I always say to people. Oh, please do not start in Genesis. Do not jump in at Revelation and figure out which monster is a helicopter. Start with the Gospels. You know, it it makes sense. If you're going to read a book, wouldn't you want to know about the main character? And everything else is built around that. Everything else hangs on that. It's Jesus. If you're new to the Bible, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see Jesus. And then here's what you need to understand. The Old Testament is nothing but a big finger pointing forward saying, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. God's going to send one. You're never going to take care of this problem with sheep and bulls and goats and heifers and He's coming, the one who's gonna solve our real problem. The New Testament is nothing but a big finger pointing back saying, he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and here's why it matters and how it should affect your life today. Here's why it matters and how it should, we got 13 letters of the New Testament saying, he came, he lived, he died, and here's practically how it impacts your marriage, money, parenting, communication, conflict, pride. The New Testament centered around Jesus, Jesus, he came. Here's why it matters and how it should affect your life. And then the revelation sticks the landing by saying, and this one is coming again and you better get ready. He's coming. He came. He's coming again. He's coming. He came. He's coming again. I just gave you the Bible. It's all about, say his name. Jesus. Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you'll miss the whole point of the Bible. Can it happen? Can you actually read your Bible and miss Jesus? You can. You shouldn't, but you can. And that's why he looked at the religious leaders in John chapter 5. That's not the only place he talks this way. John chapter 5, he looks at the religious leaders in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures. Good. We need more people to actually read the Bible. So far, so good. You search the scriptures because in them you think that you'll have life. Still good. They do tell us about real life. Real life. Problem coming right here. And it is they that bear witness about me. And here's what's interesting as he says that, what part of the Bible existed back then? Only the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. So he's saying what I just told you. He is saying, your Old Testament that you study looking for life bears witness of me. I'm in there. I'm in there. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're looking in the right place, but refusing to come to the right person. Jesus, 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 Jesus. He says, you have taken away the key To knowledge. And here's why. The human heart. I hope you realize. The human heart longs to be at the center. And craves a system. Instead of needing to cry out to a savior. You realize we don't actually like being helpless. And hopeless. And sinful wretches in need of a savior. I don't know if that's news to you. We, we really didn't need our culture to start saying, no, no, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're really good. Our little hearts cry that anyway, and we say, good, yes, 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 yes. We don't like being helpless and hopeless in need of a si- We long to be at the center, and we crave a system that we can manage and work that's measurable and certainly allows me to compare myself to others in some way. It was happening back then, still happening today, which is why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome, digs into this same issue some more. Go to Romans chapter 9 with me. We're going to stay there the rest of the sermon. Same theme, same subject, but we're going to keep moving forward with Romans 9 to unpack this some more. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, have attained it? The Jews were always thinking, we're it. We're the chosen people and we have favor with God. Ah, those Gentiles, they called Gentiles dogs. He's like, I got news for you. Those dogs, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. How? That is a righteousness That is, oh, say these two words. Say it again. By faith. By faith. faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it, say it, By by faith. But as if it were based on works. That's what we. they were supposed to take that law and realize, oh, my goodness, if this is what God says, if this is the standard, if this is the expectation, ah, we fall short. We need that promised one that he's saying is going to come. Oh, instead, they took it and said, good, we'll do this. We'll do this. We'll do this. It's the same thing that happens today. Well, the number one answers I hear when I talk about people about heaven and hell and do you think you're going to heaven I try to keep the Ten Commandments. At least they're honest enough to say try. And again, don't hear me saying, don't keep them. It makes for a better society. But will keeping the Ten Commandments get you into heaven? First, can you fully keep it all? No. Usually people just mean, I haven't broken those big ones. He says, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. Why would he talk that way? Because the intent of the law was actually to push you into a corner and bring you to the end of yourself. So that you'd say, oh, my goodness, I'm worse than I thought. Save me. Have mercy on me, oh, God. It's so that you'll want what God is offering, because until you think you need it and see your true condition, you're not interested. So that law was to what's to cause them to know they need a savior. But instead, they said, well, we'll do this. We'll pursue it this way. We'll just do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Verse 32 again. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Guess what? This is talking about Jesus. And he's quoting Isaiah 28. Jesus is in the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 28 now. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. The Old Testament said Jesus is going to be the cornerstone. Everything depends on him. Everything rides on him. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There it is again. See, you will either stumble over Jesus or you will be delighted in Jesus And if you're in the middle of busily doing what you think makes you better than others, he'll be offensive to you. And you'll stumble. Because he'll he'll say, I came not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. And you're like, well, I'm no sinner. I'm no sinner. You'll stumble over him. My mom and dad grew up in the church. Well, my dad didn't grow up in church at all. My mom grew up in a church that just kind of preached a be nice, be nice, feed the hungry, be nice. And we're not like those people out there. So she didn't think she was a sinner. And when my brother and I started going to this Baptist church for for vacation Bible school, and we're bringing little sheets home that say Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all they gave us was black crayons. Just make it black. (laughs) And they were offended as they sat up at night saying, we're not sinners and my sweet little five-year-old twins are not sinners. They were offended, right? Until you're willing to see yourself as scriptures say you are, you're going to stumble over Jesus. and Now, by God's grace, they got saved. But at first, it's difficult. You have to see yourself as worse than you actually saw yourself before you actually see Jesus for who he is and realize, I need him. A stumbling and a rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. These are not atheists, you guys. These are not even agnostics. They believe in God and have a zeal for God. Two scary words coming next. But not according to knowledge. Can you have great zeal for God and can be completely wrong about who you think God is and what his expectations are? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Here it is. And seeking to establish their own. See, you won't be interested in Jesus if you're busy establishing your own righteousness. And proving to everyone, even if you don't say it out loud, how you're doing all the right things in the right way and enough of it. Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, don't make a mistake here. That doesn't mean now throw out the law. No, no, no. That word end is the word telos that means All of this was pointing towards Christ. All of this is fulfilled in Christ. He is the climax. He's the consummation. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All of this was pointing towards a righteousness that we could never find in the death of a lamb, a sheep, a dove, some offerings. Jesus, Christ is the end of all that that it's been pointing to. Where do I find real righteousness that can be given to me, even though it's not my own? Where can I find a righteousness that'll make me right in front of a holy God, even though I know I'm still not right at all? I'm still a sinner. Jesus. 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 See, when you're caught up in man-made religion, number three, you'll be busy and zealous, but for all the wrong things. Busy and zealous, but for all the wrong things. Look at verse 2 again. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were so busy doing what they thought was God's stuff that they missed God's son. It was happening back then. It can still happen today. Do you realize our world loves to point to feelings and emotion and passion and zeal and authenticity as the litmus test for truth. Do you realize the ultimate litmus test for truth is not sincerity and zeal? Can you be very sincere, very zealous, and very wrong and on the wrong path? Yes. The litmus test for what you want to believe about God is God's word. It's God's word. I just get this all the time. As I'm I'm talking to people, I love to ask them, do this. And what is your basis of of authority for that? I just, they kind of go mystical on me. I just kind of feel like God is going to be real. Oh, I'm like, and how did you come to that conclusion? I don't know. I just, I just kind of think you're just going to kind of go to hell. Like, like that's scary. And and sometimes I'll say, you want to base your eternity on that? What if you're wrong? And then they do look a little, a little rattled. It's like God's word, God's word. God's word, not what you feel, what you think, what you just kind of believe, how you God is. You realize we're going to be accountable because God didn't leave it fuzzy. We had Romans one last week, right? He's made plain to them who he is. So it's not going to be okay to say, this is just what I thought. This is just what I felt. I wish I'd had more to go on. He has chosen to reveal himself through all of creation, through his word and through his son taking on flesh. You must conclude who God is through how he's revealed himself. That's the litmus test. Not are you sincere? Are you zealous? What about you today? Are you focused on everything you think you're doing for God? God stuff. Or do you have a knowledge of God that's based on the word of God? that points you to the Son of God as your only hope. What do you have? Like the Citibank commercial, you know, what's in your pocket? I want to say, what is in your corner of hope? What do you think is doing it for you? How are you going to stand before God? You will stand before God. What is it that you hope is going to make you right before that God? It better be a knowledge of God that's based on the word of God that points you to the son of God, who is our only, only hope. There are not multiple ways. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father, but by saying. And so as you read through the Gospels, you'll see, you'll see it over and over. The people who fought Jesus the most were not the sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. They were thrilled to eat with him. He got criticism from them. They were drawn to Jesus. Not because he affirmed their lifestyle, you guys, but because he spoke hope to those who were truly broken and knew they were sinners. The people that fought with him the most were those Who didn't say there is no God, but they still didn't know God. K-N-O-W. Because they were so consumed with what they thought they were doing for God to earn his favor. You realize there's nothing you personally can do to, to earn God's favor? Nothing. 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 So has there ever been a time in your life, let me ask you. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've shifted from a system, whatever it is you think you should be doing? And we don't preach it that way, but because the human heart so wants this, you could could settle into a system right here. You realize we talk about small groups so much, community group. You might say, okay, that's how you're right with good. You get in a group. You get in a group. Give some money. Teach kids class. Could you be in a community group, be teaching a kids class, and give some money in the offering box and still be on your way to hell? Yes. Yes, we don't teach and preach anything being a system, but the human heart takes all kinds of things and misses the main point of Jesus and creates a system. People don't mean to confuse people, but you may have grown up in a church I did where at the end of the service they sing just as I am forever. And you gotta walk the aisle and come down front. Real awkward, real embarrassing. But if you're willing to be that courageous to get up in front of everybody and walk down to the sweaty pastor. And they don't mean to teach walking down the aisle saves you. But what do people start to think? Oh, just go down the aisle. And then the wife keeps elbowing her lost, hellious husband. Go, Freddie. Go. When are you going to go? And finally, he's like, I'll go. I'll go. And then forevermore, she's like, well, we know Freddie's a Christian now because... The human heart loves to lock onto. did you walk the aisle? Did you get baptized? Did you light a candle? Did you walk the little trail at youth camp and throw a stick in the fire? Did you sign a card? It loves to take everything and anything and turn it into, this is what I did. And this is now my assurance that I'm okay. Is there, has there been any point in your life that you shifted from a system to a savior? Can you recall a day that you were struck by, oh, my goodness, I've heard this word a lot, sin and sinner, but I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of a savior shifted from a system to a savior. Has there been some point in your life where you shifted from religion to a relationship with Jesus? You know him. You trust him. You love him. You listen to him. You depend on him. Your assurance is him. Your hope is him. Oh, listen to me. You could be sitting here. I think, I think one of the biggest mission fields in the world is not the bar scene in Covington. Trust me, there's lots of people there. It's in churches. I think these are the hardest people to come to faith in Christ. Because they're where they think they ought to be. And they're doing a few things they think they ought to do. And therefore, they think they're Okay. You could be sitting here and still not right with God and on your way to a, an eternal, Christless hell if you've never submitted to the righteousness of God that's in His Son Jesus and said, I need a Savior. I could never be good enough. I could never keep the law. Forgive me. I believe in Jesus, who He is, and what He did that he took my sin on him and paid the price to a holy God so that now I have his righteousness as if it was mine. It's been applied to my account by faith, by faith, by faith. I sat next to a man on a plane who was on his way to Toronto and I started asking questions, just making conversation, found out he's a professor at a university, no dummy. And when he found out I was a pastor, ooh, the conversation shifted, but it didn't shut down. Sometimes that's a shutdown. But he got excited. This was different. He got excited and began to tell me about all the ways he'd been involved in his church for 20 years now. He'd served as a deacon. He'd served as an elder. And right then he was in a special by invitation only group of men who would meet with the senior pastor to discuss good books by C.S. Lewis and others that they were reading. I was like, oh, I don't hear this every day. (laughs) Wonderful. But then I did what I always do anyway. Right? Could this man still need Jesus? When he took a breath, I leaned over and I used my all-time favorite question that I hope you're starting to get that I think clarifies more than any other question what someone's really trusting in. I said, hey, if this plane crashed, Instead of landing in Cincinnati, that's always a good way to go. (laughs) And you were to stand before God, which you will. And I will, too. And he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Oh, my goodness. What they say next is what they really believe. What they say next is what they're actually hoping in. And he took off talking about his wife. I've never gotten that before. So it threw me for a minute. He took off talking about his wife. He's like, oh my goodness, my wife has been in the church serving and teaching and giving and helping for years. And for years, I used to think, thank goodness she is doing so much in the church. I kid you not what I'm about to say is that she will have surplus grace points that God will allow her to transfer to me. And I was like, Oh, my word. But then he said, I was thrilled. But then I stopped thinking that way. I'm like, well, good, because that is so wrong. I I thought he was going to say next, but I began to read my Bible and realized, oh, no one can do that for you. It's only Jesus. You put your trust in Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection. That's how I'm forgiven. I know I'm right with God because of Jesus, not my wife. Not what he said. He said, but I stopped thinking that way. Because I started doing so much in the church that I figured I have enough grace points of my own so that I don't need any of hers. I'm sure my jaw dropped open exposing my little Delta Peanuts and cookie that I was choking on. (laughs) You've got to be. But folks, this is what people are locked into. Earn, merit, grace points, system. I was sitting next to a a woman that heads up. She's big time in the Mormon church. Takes kids out of school, time release and teaches them. And she just kept saying, we're both teaching grace. We're saved by grace in the Mormon church. We're saved by grace. I said, we're saved by grace. I think we're saying something different. I think you're doing. So I asked my question. She is sitting there saying, we teach that you're saved by grace. I'm thinking, you do not. Liar. I didn't say that. Instead, when she took a breath, I just asked the same question. So if this plane crashed instead of landing in Salt Lake City and we stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? She said, oh, oh, I'd say because I have a recommend card. I just let it hang in the air. If I would had reverb, I would have brought it up. Recommend card, 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 card. So that you could just feel it. Pregnant pause. And I said. You do realize that sounds a lot like works. She didn't say, oh, because of what Jesus has done. I said, what is a recommend card? What about the rest of us? I've got AAA. I've got American Express. How do I get this? I don't have this. She said, oh, because I'm a blah, blah, blah. I get to meet with the bishop every year. And he examines my life to see if I'm doing enough of the right things. And if you are, you're given a recommend card. Folks. People are locked into works, even while they might call it grace. Do you realize people will just redefine words and still act like we're taught? The human heart is so set on works that you can even start using the right words. But you've gutted them of the true meaning. Works. Works. I hope you realize there's no, no human being that can do anything for you or give to you anything that will help you when you stand before God. The Virgin Mary doesn't have extra grace points to give you. No saint that's lived in the past. It will, you will either stand alone before a holy God and be condemned, or you will stand with your Savior as your advocate as he says, She's mine. He's mine. Look at the robe of righteousness. Has nothing to do with how wonderful they are. They put their trust in me. Mine. Those are the only two options. No one can do for you or give to you something that's going to help you. Jesus. But let me show you something else at the very heart of this man-made religion. When you get caught up in man-made religion, number four, you will be guilty of trying to stay in control. You realize that's one of our biggest deals. We do not like not being in control. Look at verse 3 in Romans 10. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, look at it. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. Oh, it's a free gift, you guys. Yes, salvation is a free gift. But you have to be willing to submit to God's will and come to the end of yourself and say, Oh, God, give me this. Not, Here's what I bring. Thanks for what you're doing. We'll meet halfway, God. Empty hands. Bringing nothing but your sinful condition and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, a sinner, a sinner. See, the human heart does not like being helpless and hopeless or submitting. There was a time that someone asked to to talk with me more about the gospel because they've been attending our services and said, can I meet with you? I still have questions about salvation gospel. So I shared the gospel. That is simple. It is a simple message that the perfect son of God took on flesh, came into our world, kept God's law perfectly. The only one then gave his life, not for his own sin, but for ours. And our sin was placed on him and God's wrath was poured out on him. And he rose again, breaking the power of sin so that now anyone who believes, who puts their faith in Jesus is saved. When I finished, they said, it can't be That easy. Now, I don't know what you say to that response. I used to say, oh, but it is. It is. I don't do that anymore. Here's what I said. Oh, oh, it's simple enough for a child to understand. But let me tell you why it's not easy. Let me tell you why it's hard. Because this free offer of the gospel, you can only receive it. If you're willing to humble yourself and see yourself as a desperate sinner, this free offer cuts the feet out from underneath our good opinion of ourselves and self-righteous pride, which is our biggest sin that holds on the longest and dies the last. Oh, this is hard. It's hard. It's simple, but it's hard because it cuts the feet out from underneath our high opinion of ourselves. So maybe I hope you're saying, Brad, wow, this has been heavy. If I can't earn it and I don't deserve it, how? How can I be saved? How does his righteousness become mine so that I can be right before God? Two words that you see two times in Romans 9. Verse 30 and verse 32 give the answer. Look at verse 30 again. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is, say the two words. Say it again. By By faith. And look at verse 32 again that tells why the Jews missed it. Why they missed it. Why? Because they did not pursue it, say it, by faith. faith, But as if it were based on works. Skip down to verse 9 in Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. Now we're talking about a courtroom term. That word is a Greek word that means you're in a court. You are guilty. There's no hope for you. But someone else does what is necessary to clear you. When you believe in Jesus... You're justified. And it's better than a clean slate. It's not like that record of sin is removed. Oh, it's better than that. That record of sin is removed. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ is put in place as if it is yours. Do you realize that what believers have? As if it was yours. So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't say, well, thank goodness all that yuck is removed. He sees the righteousness Of Jesus Christ. Not one day, someday. Now. 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 That's why he can delight in you. That's why he can love you. That's why he can accept you. That's why you can have access into his presence. Day and night. Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus. 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 Well let me say a word to believers here before I close. I hope anyone here that doesn't truly know the Lord. And is truly not saved or born again. Has heard that your only hope is Jesus. But I believe there really are believers who are saved that spend the bulk of their life still wrestling and doubting whether they're right with God because they live by feelings. And you say, I don't feel righteous because here's what you need to know. When you get saved and you're born again, guess what? You see more sin in your life than you did before. You didn't used to care about anything. All of a sudden you've got a you're alive. And and you're in relationship to a holy God. So as you draw near to him, you're like, oh, oh, oh. And if you want to focus on that, you will just be paralyzed. So they doubt that they're righteous before God because they don't feel righteous. They doubt that they're forgiven because they don't feel forgiven. What's the answer? The answer for salvation is to look to Christ. Guess what? The answer for this is to keep looking to Christ. Stop looking at yourself and look to Christ. And be encouraged. If this is your struggle, it's not just you. Oh, many others, many others have struggled like this. You ever heard of the John Bunyan? Or no, was it Paul? No, he cut down the tree. John Bunyan. They wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the number two best-selling book in the world. Do you realize after the Bible, it's Pilgrim's Progress, not Fifty Shades of Grade, not not any other best-selling series Pilgrim's progress has been translated in more languages in the world, second to the Bible. This guy knew the gospel. This guy knew Jesus. And this guy struggled with doubts and feeling condemned constantly. And he said, this is what I learned to do. Listen to what he says, because I think some of you need to do this. He said, I still have bouts with condemnation and doubt, but here's what I learned to do. I overcame them by focusing on Christ as my advocate. An advocate is someone who speaks in your behalf, who stands in your behalf, who pleads for someone else. They plead for someone else. He says this if you slip, if you do more than stumble, but in fact fall flat on your face, then you can be certain that pretty soon your enemy will submit a bill to heaven for your failure. Don't worry. Go immediately to Christ as your advocate. Too often Christians turn and start combing over their lives and say, well, it's true. It's true. I am pretty awful. That's not the answer. You realize one of, the, one of the main strategies of our enemy is he's called the accuser of the brethren. If he can't take you to hell, he would love to immobilize you and make you almost useless because you just comb over your own life so much. And you're never sure. You're never sure. You're never sure. So you're not excited about talking to anyone else about it. He's the accuser. Of the brethren, he says, don't look at yourself, go immediately to Christ as your advocate, and he will plead for you before God, your judge against the devil, your adversary. Don't worry about how bad your failure was. Instead, let it move you to humility and the realization of your own weakness, but then stop thinking about it for Christ will use it for glory. I love this next phrase. In fact, the angels will shout out loud to see him prove your innocence. After all, that's Christ's job. He is our advocate and he takes joy in winning his people's freedom. You realize he's your only hope for salvation. And then as you live the Christian life, keep your eyes fixed on him. It's his job and his joy to plead for you. One of my favorite things to say back to Satan, because I hope this doesn't shock you, I still sin. I sin. I still get discouraged in the areas that I've been praying about for years and it's still not better than I thought. I still sin. My favorite thing to say back is, oh yeah, when he says, look at you. Who do you think you, I am a great sinner. And that's why I have a great savior. That's my answer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm worse than you even know. Yes, I'm a great sinner, and that's why I have a great Savior. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you. Thank you for the gentle come-to-me messages. But, oh, thank you for taking the gloves off and going off on this deadly, deceptive trap of self-made, man-made system, religion. Oh God, shatter it. Leave us hopeless and helpless before you so that we would cry out and see as our only hope, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for all of your word and thank you for your son, our savior. Draw people to him who don't know you today. And turn eyes of believers that have been focused on themselves back onto this glorious Savior who pleads for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.